well known to theater fans since her 1978 role in a popular film musical. She made her mark on stage with a series of dramatic roles in such shows as A Day in the Death of Joe Egg, The House of Blue Leaves, Woman in Mind, Six Degrees of Separation, Hapgood, Lion in Winter, and currently Lincoln Center Theater's production of Other Desert Cities, mixing in musicals along the way, including their playing our song, The Rink, and Pal Joey. Welcome to the American Theater Wing's Downstage Center. I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theater Wing, and after many years as her abject fan, I'm very pleased to meet Stockard Channing. Very pleased to meet you. Thank you. I'm going to follow my abject fan comment with, with an atypical starting question, which is when I saw you both times in Joe Egg, both in New Haven and here in New York, I thought deeply about writing you fan mail and, <laughs> and something held me back. I just wonder, as a performer, do you like getting fan mail? How do you respond, not literally perhaps, but but what is it like to get stuff coming in over the transom? Um, to be honest, most of his requests to sign something or sign a picture to attach to a very nice note that's very appreciative. You know, very rarely is it somebody who was – that's a really personal story that one really have to respond to. I mean, I'm pretty good at, at when I get it, sort of signing the picture and sending it back or sending them a playbill. I mean, um, very rarely is it something that is really that personal. Hmm. Interesting. Well, let's talk about what you're doing right now, which is John Robin Bates's play, Other Desert Cities. Um, it's your first time in about three years doing a show here in New York. Uh, Pal Joey would have been two 2008, years. 2009. Right. Right. Yeah, so um, why this play? What attracted you? I imagine you get lots of scripts. Well, um, first of all, it came from Joe Mantello, who's directing it, and and Robbie Bates, both of whom I know. And in fact, and I have a long relationship at um, Lincoln Center. And they sent it to me uh, last June. And at first, I, I basically said to them, I really need to read this out loud because um, I was very concerned about the age aspect. Nobody seems to be concerned about it anymore. Uh, but I didn't know if I could do this woman properly. And they got a little jumpy and they said, are you committing or not? I said, that's not the issue. I'm not judging the play. I really want to sit down in a room with four other actors because that's what I like to do. Um, because that's how the only thing I can tell of how, what contribution I can make. I don't sit there and heft the play. I wanted to see if I can make this character work because she was um, – I just wanted to see how, how it flew. And we did a read. We sat in um, Andre Bishop's office at Lincoln Center. I mean it was no audience or anything except for Andre and Bernie Gersten. And we read it and uh, it's just – it lifted emotionally. I was really taken with that. Um, and then they told me – or Robbie told me even though I've been working on it for three years. It was the first time he'd ever heard it read out loud. Hmm. And I said, I can't believe that because I would think – as you know, you've seen this piece. It's all about people talking to each other. Yeah. I can't imagine there wasn't some informal reading, but there wasn't. So then Joe and um, and Robbie went off for about a couple, week and took like 10 pages out of it. It was a piece that needed to be shaped a lot. It was like a gorgeous piece of meat that needed the best butcher to get it right. And, and we – in rehearsal period, um, we would do that little snippets here and there, snippets that were basically taken out, very little added. Hmm. Um, and, uh, I, it sort of worked out in, on all many levels. It was easy. It fell into place, if you will, in terms of when it would happen, this, that, and the other. 
I have to say the response to it is so extraordinary. And not that I didn't think it was a really wonderful play and a wonderful production, but not having seen it, I'm at a bit of a disadvantage because I'm, as we're all are woven through it with the exception of Beth Marvel, who's playing Brooke, who barely, hardly ever leaves the stage, but does occasionally. Um, I, I obviously having an enormous connection to its audience. I won't continue with your piece of meat metaphor regarding <laughs> the material, but it's interesting that you say it was about pairing away because often when actors become part of the process, a playwright can get new ideas. The actors may reveal things to the playwright that either they hadn't thought of you know, or, or suggest things that they think would help. This wasn't a case of where – Robbie shaped it to this terrific cast, but really it was just the pairing away? Yes, a lot of pairing away. Um, I even asked at one point, we were in preview, and I asked him, I said, I've, he would ask us if we thought something we didn't need in the speech, and I had a speech in which I literally took about half of it out. And he said, well, I said, what do you think of this? And he said, fine, because it makes the, the moment emerge. If, if, they, if cases are overstated or things are overwritten in a play like this, it can take the air out of it a little bit. And um, we're talking about a, literally a line here, a phrase here. And in hindsight, it's amazing to me that – I mean they've all really worked better. They made the, the story of the play release itself um, of what the uh, characters are thinking and what the inter interaction is. And you know, I can't imagine it any other way. So I don't miss any of it. And mind you, if tonight I said, you know what? I think we should put that phrase back in. He'd probably say, go ahead, hmm. do it. We, there, there's, it, it wasn't a, a massive amount, but sometimes if you do the right pairing, it, tell, it really it releases a lot more energy on the stage. Without giving away too much of the play, because yeah. I think it is a play of revelations, we, yes, can say, yeah. we can say that it's a play about – that really centers on a young woman who is at least somewhat estranged from her family who is returned – to the family home for the first time in a number of years. Six years, yes. And ultimately over the course of an evening, things are revealed. The final revelations about your character and um, the character of your husband played by Stacey Keach suddenly for the audience throw almost into doubt all of the perceptions that have come before. Well, like any play, it's a bit of a Rorschach test. There will be – you'll ask different members of the audience what they think of Polly, my character, or what they think of other characters and they will have – you'll have a lot of different responses to it. Hmm. You're right. And at the end, this revelation happens that the, the things were not as they seemed and so I think certain behavior patterns and, and certainly in my character have been formed by 25 years of uh, – Sitting on something, shall we say, you know, and a, a certain carapace that she has created that um, has protected her and kept her going, if you will. Since you say the play is a Rorschach test for the audience, it's because there is ambiguity about and people Everything. project on it. I mean, there's a lot of issues of, you know, people and their mothers. What can I say? Well, people and their mothers, Republicans and Democrats. Oh, yeah. all of, there, yeah. there are all of these. New Yorkers these and Californians. New Yorkers and California, exactly. As an actor shaping the character, have you decided what the truth of the character is? Has Robbie told you or Joe told you what the truth of the character should be? Or are you actually playing the ambiguity itself? 
No, I, I know who she is. I know what she thinks. If I can get to the point where I know her character is thinking, that's where I, I'm in my safety zone there. I know what her rationales are. I know what she's thinking. I don't know if Robbie and Joe would agree with me, to be honest. Well, that's why I asked the question because there's the story about doubt where you know Doug Hughes and John Shanley and Breen O'Byrne came right. to an understanding of whether – the priest was in fact guilty of what he was accused of. Right. So, but in this case, well, this is a different you, case. I mean, yes, in this it's case, not the, same, the truth is revealed mm-hmm. at the end, and you have someone who's been trying to not have the truth revealed, not for the reasons that the audience thinks she's not having it revealed. That's the other thing. I mean, it's like uh, be very careful what you wish for a little bit <laughs> in life, because um, her daughters believe that everything should be revealed, everything should be seen. And that's really the core of the play, too. I mean, where is privacy? Where is public? And and even without the revelation at the end, when you didn't have that, that's an issue and all that. How long are you a parent of a child? How long is a child to be um, requiring a parent to make certain sacrifices for them? And I mean all the children, shall we say. Hmm. I think a lot of those questions are all raised moment to moment in this play. How? What obligation does a sister have to a sister? How much – do we tell about what is the truth? Hmm. Whose truth is what? You said earlier that you couldn't decide on the part until you at least read it out loud yeah. and, and heard it read aloud. Now, that's in terms of just deciding whether you could play it or whether you thought the play worked. Was it about you or the the whole thing? The whole thing. Not so much the play working, but I was really surprised by the emotional impact that happened even in the room with a basically cold reading with – five actors, and I thought there was something in there. I didn't really know what it was, but I hadn't expected that. And when we got to the last five, ten minutes of the piece, there was a lot of electricity in the room, which was only magnified. Now they've actually created the piece and it's in front of an audience. Is that something you find you need when approaching any part or only this part or only new plays? Well, I haven't done um, – well, I, I, that's actually inaccurate because Pal Joey actually was a new play. It was a new book uh, written by Richard Greenberg. Um, I I mean all new plays, whether it arises, they're new to me. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean I did Little Foxes a few years ago at Lincoln Center directed by Jack O'Brien and Jack and Brian and I had an angle that, that uh, Regina was not the Regina that you saw on screen with Betty Davis until the end – of the production, and some people had an issue with that. But that Regina basically, um, and, and then the heavy emphasis by then, how Regina was screwed over by her husband, mm. to be honest, who, you know, had this hatred for her. Uh, not that she was an innocent little something at the beginning, but it was what circumstances will do to someone, and that that Regina that was inside her, that cold, calculating capitalist, whatever you want to call it, came out given the circumstances she was in. Not that it was a sympathetic, and told to me this was a new play. Well, the approach you talk about is now in many ways how people have to approach Merchant of Venice in order to make it playable, Mm -hmm. that it's the circumstances that make the person. The person is not innately born to be. Exactly, exactly. And that's – if I had a philosophy of acting, I suppose that's what's developed over the years. Hmm. Well, let's jump back to when you were young. You grew up here in New York on the Upper East Side. Was uh, theater going a regular part of your upbringing? Well, ironically, no. My mother and father would go to musicals and there'd be a lot of, you know, they'd have their nightly drinks or people go over and there'd be this, whatever the current musical 
was on like gentlemen prefer blondes or they would call me madam or this would be on in the background behind you know the tinkling of ice and the glasses I always went to musicals when I was a kid. That's what my parents – also, my father was in the shipping business, and there was a lot of traveling done in the summer. So when we were in London, my mother would take me to musicals or even New York. But it wasn't until I was a teenager and I was able to travel on my own that I saw um, straight plays. I don't think I saw a straight plays until I was in high school. And um, and then when it, in the sort of the late 60s, early 70s on my own, that's when I would, I was, went to go to England on my own and I, I sort of sopped, sopped up a lot of English theater. As you were watching theater, were you thinking about being a part of it or was it simply – Yeah, by that time I was. Oh, when I was at Harvard, um, even my first year I started acting. But it really uh, – it wasn't until I was almost out as a junior I think and – that I did this production of Three Penny Opera. That was kind of the turning point for me in my life. And I played Pirate Jetty and something happened. I don't hmm. know. And I, I realized that some, my life had changed whether I wanted it to or not. So how much theater did you get to do? You say that was early your junior year. How many shows can you do if you really find it then while you're still in college? Well, you, I, you may not be aware of this. I don't know. But I was at uh, Harvard at a particular fecund time and it's you know theatrical – Endeavors and all extracurricular. Um, and John Lithgow John was there Lithgow, at the same time. Uh, Jimmy Woods was at MIT. Tommy Lee Jones. A lot of people that are not known now. I think Frank Rich was actually a few years behind me. Andre Bishop was um, who now runs Lincoln Center was a few years behind me. But we were all there around the same time because I also acted at local after I graduated. Acted at local theaters like the Theater Company of Boston for David Wheeler. And, and there was an incredible, diverse, and very active uh, theatrical community going on there. And some people who unfortunately are no longer with us on this planet, but it was a fantastic community. And I was a part of that, say starting with my junior year, but then going even five or six years after that because I was living in Boston. So at what point did you decide to leave Boston and come to New York? Um, when I was working in the theater company of Boston, there would be this sort of ritual on a Sunday night after a play. You'd, people would pile into this car and lurch down to New York and sort of sleep on people's floors and drink way too much and then uh, pile back in that same car on a Tuesday. And so I got to know, because at the theater company of Boston those days, they, they would job in actors from New York and they became friends of mine and helped me out and and I would sort of go back and forth between New York and Boston in those days and uh, there was a uh, production of Adaptation Next originally directed by Elaine May Terrence McNally that I was actually in a company in Boston and so there was a sort of thing back and forth and this then really they were great friends of mine who really helped me get going Paul Benedict the late Paul Benedict was a great friend of mine and and various others uh, my first professional job I think I was still an undergraduate was at theater company in Boston and I shared a dressing room with Blythe Danner and she did a John Hawkes play and I did a Rosalind Drexler play you know and that was the way the world was then and it gave me a and also at theater company in Boston they only did um uh, they usually did contemporary plays, new plays. It was a hmm. very vibrant uh, stuff. And then, and then at and at Harvard, I had Tim Mayer and and Tom Babe who would do productions as undergraduates. We at those days you had access to the Loeb Theater and uh, the Axie Theater in Radcliffe. So there was tremendously various outlets, and that was my education. I right, because we should explain for people who don't know that this certainly predates 
the founding of the American Repertory Theater, Absolutely. which was 1980. We're talking yeah. a good 10 years. Yeah, we're, ta- like oh, we're afraid we're talking more. Okay. Yeah, we're talking late, late 60s. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because early 70s, I finally came to New York and ended up in the chorus of Two Gentlemen Verona, which is a whole other story. Well, let's hear it. Well, <laughs> it kind of was a fluke. Gents? It was a fluke because um, I supposedly had another job. And when you have a chorus contract, at least in those days, you can't quit unless you have another job. It sounds odd, but I don't even know if it still exists that way. And there I was sort of stuck. And I was an understudy as well. It's a long story, but a certain person dropped out. And, and suddenly this, this other understudy part was open, namely of the Spanish lead in that production, old Julia. And everybody in the production had to be either black or Hispanic, preferably Puerto Rican, because that was the conceit behind the whole thing. And Raul Julia was the star of Joan Allen, and um, Diana Davila then took over, and I became her understudy. And she was Spanish, actually, Spanish. And, and you were noted as a Latina African American <laughs> actress. Something's a little askew. And originally, I was understudying Lucetta, who was the white maid, which was other, and of course, the person who wrote the lyrics and book for that was a man called John Guare, and that's how I met John. Hmm. So there I was struggling in the uh, in the chorus and the, being an understudy, which was hardly, you know. What my supposed background education and the works uh, kind of was where I should have ended up, not to mention the fact that I had absolutely no training in any of this, but I was winging it. Um, and uh, Diana offered to let me go on. She said – because my contract was up and she asked – invited me into her dressing room and she said, would you like to go on because I have <coughs> a little cold. And she was a, a lovely little person and she – very mischievous, and I said, okay. So not only did I go on, but I got a new contract as a standby, so I didn't have to go to the theater every night. And um, But it worked out, and I went on several times, so ultimately they asked me to take over in a national company. I think we're now getting into the early 70s, something like that, which I did, and that kind of turned my career around. That certainly was your Broadway debut. Your next Broadway show is not on uh, Many Remember. I had to look it up. No Hard Feelings. No Hard Feelings by Sam Bobrick and Ron Clark, mm-hmm. directed by Abe Burroughs. The last and his last uh, directorial job, I believe. With Eddie Albert, Nanette Fabre, mm-hmm. Conrad Janis, among others. Mm-hmm. Sadly, I'm sure for you, it was – it opened and then it closed. Well, actually not sadly because I remember standing – and the, the, by the phone booth on the wall at the Martin Beck Theater talking to John Guare. And if it hadn't closed in one night, I wouldn't have been able to go to San Francisco and be in the national company of two gentlemen. Oh, so this like, sort of came in between. Exactly. Interesting. Exactly. And so I went to San Francisco for about a month and then we went down to Los Angeles where things all started to change in my life. And though we won't go into detail, but obviously you got film work. You had TV work. The TV that, work was a, a, a very now famous movie called The Girl Most Likely to, written by Joan, Joan Rivers. Rivers yeah. yeah. And I got that. That was a summer. movie of the week. Yes, I mean, ABC was. movie of the week. I remember indeed. them from those days. Exactly. And, um, and that, and then, yeah, so that's really where, and then subsequently in January, I met Mike Nichols and um, he cast me in The Fortune the following spring. And then a little something called Greece came along in seventy eight. Yeah, Greece. Yes, Greece came along after that. But there was 
there was a tele there was a television show and there a, a sitcom. There was also, but that was after. Excuse me, forgive me. That was after Greece. Yeah. But let me ask you. I don't normally talk about movies much, but but I have to ask given given Greece's basis in the stage. Greece has become for now a couple of generations of kids an iconic yeah. film. Of all of your work from that era, did you have any idea that this might be the one that people probably still come up to you and talk to you about? I basically did Grace because I was broke. Um, the, I'd done three movies in a row, even though I adored The Fortune. I thought it was one of the – still thinks it's one of the best things I've ever done. It didn't make any money. You that was the film with Jack Nicholson with Jack and Warren, Warren Beatty. directed by Mike, Mike Nichols. And I did two more films. Um, uh both of which I had fun in, especially um, something called The Sweet Revenge was a Jerry Schatzberg film that went to Cannes as all his buds. And it all went – just went south. And I literally could have, couldn't get arrested from being what they call hot for about a year. I um, So I had a manager at the time, obscure manager called Alan Carr. And, Not um, so obscure. Who was there <laughs> to uh, – who um, supposedly plump up my career again. And uh, it happened very quickly. I met Pat Birch and the director and um, – Within two days, suddenly I was being the world's oldest living teenager. Um, and I also was doing a film uh, for Neil Simon at the time. But uh, So I go back and forth between Warner Brothers and uh, Paramount. But I basically had a great sense of occasion about good old Rizzo. And I've said this before because um, I just tried to approach her as a character. I mean I thought of her as a, a kind of you know tough little teen who – had sexual appetites and a, probably a great sense of social inferiority at the same time. So that's what I, I thought about it. I didn't know how else to do about it because I wanted to do as good a job as I could and um, and I was a bit of a fish out of water, not completely. Um, and I was older than everybody else but that, that all sank in. It was a long shoot. It was a very um, pampered shoot in terms of time. It was like four months which is a long hmm. shoot for those days. It's beautiful production values. It's shot beautifully. I mean, he was shot by the main, the same man who shot Jaws. And, and it great production values and care. And um, having said that, I kind of, you know, treated it when it was over like, oh, that was done, you know, show close sort of feeling. And I don't know to this day what its tremendous appeal is. I've had many mixed feelings about it because um, I now lead into your probably next question, why I came back to the stage. I remember very clearly the New York Times review, which – was sort of forced down my throat for the first production of Joe Egg that uh, Frank Rich wrote and actually made a sort of negative reference to Greece. In my personal life, it had been a really upsetting time. I literally left California, left everything. It was like starting over again and I went back into the theater. And I went to Williamstown and did it um, with, for Arvin Brown up there first and then we did it at Long Wharf in New Haven. But it was almost a conscious thing to go back to my roots because I felt my life was sort of running away with me and I was being defined by criteria that I had not intended, if you will. But where in – because I didn't know the dates of the Williamstown production. Where did their playing our song fall in all of this? Did you actually – was that, that the first no, that, time it came. I did a television show which I actually owned um, for two half seasons at, at CBS and, and then after um, that first half – the second half was over. I got a call from Neil to, Simon, if I would come in and, and and take over on they're playing our song, which would be 1980. Mm-hmm. And when that uh, closed, I would say between ni- the end of 1980 to 81 is is really the the big shakeup. And uh, when the dust settled, is I actually wrote 
letters to um, I write them to to and it was obviously to Arvin Brown to Ted Mann and I, I think it was Gordon Davis and I'm not sure I can't remember saying you know I want to get back in the theater and Arvin wrote me back and said I'd have an interest in in Joe Wag so that was a, so that would have been probably the summer of eighty one did you know Joe Wag when he suggested no, it to you no I. I don't think I'd ever seen it. Um, I knew, knew of it, mm-hmm. certainly. Um, and in that uh, – at Williamstown, I did it with Richard Dreyfus, and um, – And did it as well in New Haven with yeah, Richard Dreyfuss. And it was, yes, exactly. Yeah. And then Richard decided not to continue with it. So I think it took another three years, something like that, before we were able to do it for the roundabout at FIT with Jim Dale. Yeah, it's about three years exactly. Yeah. Um, your performance – was extraordinary in that and I'm wondering the opportunity to play a part admittedly in the same production but with big separations of time between them, not so much between Williamstown and New Haven but then coming back after three years. How well, did also, that inform your work? Arvin and I, we tried we – during those three years, we tried to get it on several times. It was a very frustrating experience because it was what – it was as transformative in my life as the um, Three Penny Opera had been when I was younger in that it, it just made me realize what I really wanted to do. And between the two productions, um, I did uh, um, Pete Gurney play when there was another – You did – well, you did Michael Christopher's play. Oh, that's right. Lady in the clarinet. clarinet. That's right. You did The Rink and you did Golden Age. Golden Age, right. Before that's they between were, New Haven and Exactly, New York. exactly. And I uh, – it was a great period because I was back, you know, sort of getting my chops up, if you will, and on very, very different parts, which was wonderful. But I always, you know, I, I never dreamed that, that we'd be able to get Joe Egg on again. But you know, somehow it all fell into place, and we got Jim, and it was a fantastic time to see it. Then move to Broadway and have have it be embraced the way it was. It was well, in fact, when you say move to Broadway, it first came in and played under the auspices of the Roundabout. Yes, at FIT, you played at the FIT, in the auditorium, and, and so. So there were even you could say almost four incarnations yeah, of it, yes. although it moved fairly quickly from yes. FIT to Broadway. Yes, but did that span of time and thinking about that character and re-examining that character as you went back to it, do you feel the performance grew and changed each time? I think the relationship between the two people changed because Jim was a very different character, person, personality than Richard was. Um, I couldn't. The exact impact of that was on an audience, but for an actor playing the part, the whole relationship between the two probably changed, and they, I just went in a different way because we're two different people. All the rest of it, and for me, acting is all about interacting. So I will adjust my performance to the person I'm playing with because they will. I will react differently to well, what they Well, certainly Jim Dale and Richard Dreyfuss yeah. you know, are different people yeah. even though they are actors and can play different personas. Yeah. They're fundamentally yeah. fairly different. What also about – it changed spaces. I mean just the, the, the oh, houses that those, you were playing to. Please. It was uh, four spaces. You're right. Yeah. Absolutely right. I mean Williamstown was tiny. Longworth's a three-quarter thrust. Exactly. Um, the FIT I mean, theater is an auditorium. It's, it's an not auditorium. a theater. It's mammoth. It was just yeah. huge. And there was no amplification involved. That I, I mean, not, We weren't wearing mics or anything like that. There might have been some mics. The, I have no idea. But And then we went into the – remind me. The, um, I don't remember what house you played. I know what it is and I, I can just see it. The Long Acre. Mm-hmm. The Long Acre. Thank you. And that was a very vertical space and it was – you know, a ride. 
It was a mm-hmm. ride. Well, let's not skip over these shows in between. You said that they were all very different roles. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about each of them and how you know? Well, Lady Clarinet is of you. You got to is a massive role. She never leaves the stage, and she has to play herself at fifteen. Probably someone in her late twenties, and probably someone in her late thirties or something. Whatever. There's three marriages, three relationships, and it's very. Um, again, I did that at Long Wharf, and then we brought it into New York, the, the Lucille Hotel, and um, the Gordon Davison directing. Uh, and then, of course, to replace Liza Minnelli in the rink is a whole other amazing task, a very challenging musical. And then Pete Gurney's um, The Golden Age, it was basically a three ca- three-hander with uh, with um, Irene, Irene Worth and Jeff Daniels. Yeah, exactly. And we do that at the Kennedy Center and brought that in. And um, yeah, so there was three very different worlds. So after Joe Egg. Was there a difference in terms of how the theater community was looking at you at that point? Were there lots of offers coming your way? Were you suddenly really – had you changed the perception of being a TV and film actress and did New York recognize you as a stage actress? I think – ironically, after I did The Rink – I went back. I did a first, another TV movie, and it was as if I was now living everywhere. I mean, it's, it was working everywhere, which is ironically what I'd hoped to do to begin with. But I sort of had to leave LA to go back to LA, kind of thing. So what emerged was I I started doing more f- film and uh, television movies, of which there are a lot more in those days than there are now. And so there was more theater than then. Eighty six, I did House of Blue Leaves right. for my old friend. John, with whom I had reconnected, which was a fantastic experience. Now, was it John Guare who suggested that you were the person who should play that role in that? Well, he or? asked me which one I wanted to play. Really? Yes. And so I, Swoosie I, was not cast? No, no. Mm-hmm. I, nobody. I mean, I don't know how this I, – I remember it. I said, gee, um, and I went with Bunny. I don't know what the hell. And I think, I again, it was – the I like, I like variety in what I do and that was – it for me, whatever. It was a towing cost, to be honest with you. And uh, that was in the fall, and I guess we went into rehearsal in sort of winter sometime. And it was a, a mammoth. And again, you know, here we are starting in the Mitzi, where I am now. And the really interesting about that piece, as great as the play was and the production was, was the whole thing about moving it upstairs to the Beaumont. Because the Beaumont had been closed, basically, unless it was four-walled for something. And all they said, it's unplayable. It has no acoustics. Right. Well, the operation of Lincoln Center Theater only began again in 85. Right. The spaces had been rented. But as a resident theater company, it hadn't been since about 1980. And I think they started the the season with a David Mamet piece. Mm It was the first production. And they started – everything was in the new house at first. Exactly. So the Mitzi had – I mean the Beaumont had been shuttered basically except for some operatic things. I mean if you looked it up, I, you could tell me and I can't Did really the Peter Brook Carmen play? I can't exactly. remember. It was, it was upstairs. upstairs. Yeah. But that's a – you know, whatever. That was – yeah, its own anyway, event. Anyway, exactly. Um, so we were very, very successful and they said, do we want to continue? And then they decided they were going to move upstairs. So we had about three days – to do the technical move, and I got bronchitis. And the opening line, not sung, but spoken, because um, John Mahoney's is this piano playing stuff at the beginning of the song. 
at, is upstage left. I had to come in with a rain hat and, and plastic uh, boots on my feet in this crazy bunny flingus uh, outfit. And and I'll never forget, I had to open the door and, and say loudly, <laughs> I don't want to say it loudly because I'll break this microphone. Uh, you know what your problem is? You've got no sense of history. And I, I had, and so we did the tech and I was not allowed to speak. And all I knew was that this place was supposed to be unplayable in terms of its acoustics. And there I was with bronchitis or laryngitis, whatever itis I had. So, you know, it were all set. I was in my little outfit. And I, I just it was just scared beyond belief. And it's a mammoth house. It's uh, what is it, twelve hundred or something? It's I think 11, it's a little less, but it's so big and it's, wide it's and spacious. Yeah. At least it was the same scale as the Mitzi in terms of its shape. Right. We knew that, but much bigger. At the Mitzi is like two fifty, and this yeah. is like eleven hundred, something of that nature. And I opened my mouth and said that line, and there was this wave of laughter that came at me. But the line came out. That's the, the first The line step. came out. But I mean, you know, but whether that they were going to hear it, because uh-huh. it's up way upstage left. Mm-hmm. And I came out and I, I sent it out there as fast as I could. And I heard that wave of laughter come back. And I knew we were, and it was okay. At least we we're going to be heard. Hmm. And it was the rest is kind of history. Leaving the acoustics of the house out, you raised something interesting. I asked before about the difference of playing between different houses. Hearing the laughter of 299 people as would have been the mm-hmm. case in the Mitzi versus somewhere in the neighborhood of 1100. Does that change the timing of the show? Did it? Did you have to adjust? In a way, it's easy. For the people. I, it's just like surf's up. I mean, you, I mean, when the surf's up, you ride the surf. And in a house, even like the Mitzi, unless you're doing, you know, hell's a popping or something, uh, there's a ripple effect that could happen with a laugh. And, uh, and sometimes you don't know quite when to come in, to cut through the laugh and this, that, and the other. I found sometimes – I found the same thing in Six Degrees, that I like the bigger house because that's all I can think of. And I've never surfed in my life, so I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> but it, that is the image I have of this big wave. You know, you ride it and it, you ride it out and it's a great thing. Whereas if it's a little low, you, 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 know, you, get, you can get caught reaching for a laugh. You can get uh, – not. I don't think it happens in this particular play, but – with the kind of madness of blue leaves uh, that could happen in my recollection, and certainly in the ma- in the crazy bits of six degrees, you mm-hmm. know, it, it was. But I, I'm not apologizing for the smaller house, but it was it was really exhilarating to have that it was just a bigger sound. You know? mm. Blue leaves was one of the shows that had the rare opportunity to be filmed for broadcast, and it's preserved. Have you ever gone back to look at it? No, I'm I'm not in it. You're not in the film. No, I had really? to go. I had to leave to make a film. Oh, I didn't realize yes, that. Yes. So, so you could look at everybody else and see what they're doing, but yeah. you were able to do that. No, no, before. no. I had to. I had to go to Yugoslavia to make a movie, <laughs> <laughs> which was heartbreaking. But there you go. So, your next stage appearance um, was at Manhattan Theater Club um, in oh, yeah, Woman, Woman in, Mind, in Mind, the Alan Akeborn play, yes. for which you you got. Again, extraordinary notices and and so well received and a tricky part in that you're basically playing the same woman going back back and forth between fantasy and reality. Um, Can you talk a little about finding your way through It was was tricky. I remember it was a very challenging piece. Lynn directed. Yes. Lynn Meadow. Lynn Meadow directed and um, I – I, I can't remember what to say about it except it was uh, 
And then also, uh, she goes back and forth between fantasy and reality, and then there's that very phantasmagorical ending, which is rather difficult to stage. And then she completely breaks down and starts speaking gibberish at the end. So my memory of it is that it's you, you have to keep the, the human being there at the core of it without turning it into a total mess, which she still does at the end. But it's it's especially that, that last section when she's kind of lost and is completely in fantasy. You don't know if she's still this person the audience has gotten to know at the beginning or if she's morphed into something else. And I don't know. I mean, luckily, I was happy to hear that the response to it was so good because we were very nervous about it. It's a very tricky bit to play. You've mentioned being nervous a couple of times, so I have to ask – do you just go and do it even when you're nervous or do you have to find in the rehearsal room a way to stop being nervous or, or get uh, comfortable or is it good not to always be comfortable? Oh, no. I, I like being comfortable. I like that. <laughs> that's important. Um, you have to often go out at the beginning when you're nervous or, or you're not quite sure you know what you're thinking. You're not quite sure if you know the lines are going to flow properly and you have to do it anyway because that's the only way you're going to get to have the lines flow properly. So there's a kind of – exchange that has to happen to get to the other side. You know, you have to swim upstream for a while and and it, it never is that smooth and sometimes you go, whoa, and you fall back, you know, and the current is there. But it's like one of those things that people swim in against, which is a nightmarish to me, that the current's coming at you and it's this pool is only like 15 feet long and you're sort of swimming up, which mm-hmm. just is terrible. But it's when you get out of there into open water that I, that I go, oh, good, I'm okay now. As I'm, I'm not going to – but there's always a period where you just feel you're swimming upstream. And are you still sometimes swimming upstream at the point at which the show opens and don't find it until later? Yes, I've had that experience and it's pretty terrifying. But only when I haven't had enough rehearsal or preparation for or whatever the things may be. I have to – I always need as much time as I possibly get. Coming back to other desert cities for a moment, it's a show that starts in particular – very funny. Right. And there is humor throughout, but certainly the more serious aspects of the play reveal themselves. Yeah. When you're in the rehearsal hall, I imagine the drama, because you're not expecting reaction, is easier to find than the comedy because you don't ultimately know where people are going to really react. Was it a case when you got that in front of the audience, you found some things were funny that weren't expected? There's always a question of degree of how funny they're going to be and that will change a lot from night to night mm-hmm. because uh, as we said earlier about other desert cities, I mean, I'd be fascinated to know, for example, what it would be like to play this in California because there is a certain degree of parochialism going on here where you know, Upper West Siders of New York they think it's all very amusing to have uh, fingers poked at uh, Republican Californians and stuff. But we kind of knew that going in but um, – if anything, I think the laughs, you know, are there at the beginning and I'm more struck by the dramatic elements in it when you feel the audience getting, especially these twists and turns of when certain characters are revealed and this, that and the other, that isn't as evident in a rehearsal hall because you haven't got all those other breathing bodies with you, those 250 or whatever many there are. You know, or in a space like the Mitzi, are like going, oh, or mm. oh no, they're actually making these sounds, and you realize it's great. You, you realize the the heat of those bodies, what that's going on in their minds, and also what you need to tell them indirectly to have them understand exactly what's what has happened or what is happening. 
And that's very hard to achieve in a rehearsal hall when you've got the same five people, you know, the, oh, the stage no manager. <laughs> oh, no pads. Or, you know, staring at whatever. And you think you're right, just really wanking here, you know, to go. And you're not in the light and you're not in the space. So I think, if anything, those are the bits that – and I don't think it's just for me. I think for all of us that have um, really fleshed out and gotten crazier and bigger because, uh, as you know from having seen it, people do go a little nuts <laughs> by the end. Hmm. You just made the comment about the play is being done in New York. It's set in Los Angeles. And then, it, in, in, Palm in, Springs. in Palm Springs. And But you have a character who has become a New Yorker and how they respond to that. I, um, I have? No, no. there is a character. Elizabeth Marvel's character. Oh, I is, see. Has, exactly, has exactly. Come to New York. So you have that whole – the New Yorkers <laughs> are probably with her when the California <laughs> jokes are made. Um, Six Degrees of Separation is – a play in which it's a very New York play. It yeah. is an Upper East Side play. Right. It is your heritage and it is in part a satire of the social world yeah. of the Upper East Side. So what was the experience of playing that? It's not playing the other coast. You're playing right to the people. Your audience is the people who are being portrayed. Yeah, yeah. that I think was, was interesting in its own I myself found it curious because even though that's the world that I was born into, it's not a world that I live in. And I have to confess that when I first approached the material, I think I commented more when I was in rehearsal on um, Weezy Kittredge and I and I, I because I wanted to distance myself. What do you mean by commented more? I think I made her more extreme, more you know, lockjawed, more, and I wasn't really comfortable. Doing it, and uh, I don't know. I can't explain it. It was just a process. And also, we had a very short rehearsal period because I came to the show late, um, and they had already been in rehearsal, and whatever. And then we were actually in early previews, and a wonderful actor who's no longer with us, named Sam Stoneburner, um, who played the South African. He said, "You know, we were actually we were leaving. The, the curtain call was over, and, and uh, I was still sort of struggling to get my." bearings and he said something about oh it was a good show I said oh god I don't know Sam I'm, I'm not, I just I can't figure something out and he said no the audience loves Weeza I said they do because you know I didn't love Weeza I thought she was just this upper east side something you know everything I had sort of gone away from moved away from and he said no because she tells the truth and it was a revelation and I realized this woman I'd been sort of making to a caricature to a degree not a lot just enough was the, that was, she had, she was an innocent. She had, she told the truth. And when I went back and went through the play again, what I was doing, I went, that's true. And that's how I discovered that counterweight to her, you know, mm. flippity, her, her light side, whatever. And she was, it was the education of Lisa Kittredge, if you would. And when she, you know, there used to be that old phrase, consciousness once raised can never be altered. Um, and that's sort of what happened to her, and that's how I found that sort of center. So I think there's a universality in her that had that kind of ended up sort of completely. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Going above, uh, surpassing anything, any sort of particularness of geography or this, that, and the other. As much of a universality about her that I hadn't quite thought about at the first when I first read it. I didn't think about it at all, and. Um, I think that's one of the things that made the whole evening work. 
because hmm. it wasn't just about. I mean, yeah, you know, you know, the audience would laugh at themselves, and of course, we went into the audience. You remember that that was a staging of it. And then when I did it in London, then people laughed in the same jokes. They laughed at the same time. It was you could put a, it was like a grid. It's extraordinary. Well, but what's interesting about that play and about London? We often talk about the English are very aware of social classes, and that is a play about social classes. So more so perhaps of other American plays transferring over, I wonder if they saw – No, they don't the think level. we have any social classes. They don't think we do, but they do. But, but, so but, that, but we were all Americans. Hmm. They had – I had to explain to them. There was a, was a line in the piece called uh, – saying that saying, you embarrassed me in my building. And I believe it's the phone call and Flan is on the phone with the young man and he grabs the phone for me. And because the young man had come into his building and then supposedly, I think, ran out the door through the lobby and the real thing in, in the actual event, mm-hmm. you know, like half naked with his trek behind him or this, that and the other, I had to explain them, to them what doormen were to the cast because they had no concept of what that would mean. They thought it was an abstract phrase like – I said, no, like no, no. someone hanging around the door. <laughs> no, they didn't know that word was like you – like it was – um. What's the word I'm trying to say? Is that phrase is like you to embarrass someone in the building was like a catchphrase, like oh, a joke. Cool. You, you know, you're pissing your pants. You're this and that hmm. and the other. You threw me under the bus. You know, a phrase like that. He said, No, 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 no. This is what this is what doormen and elevator men are about, and they know everything that goes on. And this and they went, Oh, this is, this is the, the actors I'm talking about. Yeah. No, so there was a lot of stuff in the actual language that people, the audience, or, or on stage, didn't really understand because of. There were just complete references they didn't understand, but there was something about the, the family stuff that they did understand, and and there was something about other. I was amazed that it, they laughed as much as they did, hmm. because you'd get these kind of straight middle class whatever, maybe American tourists who were from Chicago with this in the in the summer audience in London. They were and they there was the same. It was the same in New York. I mean, we had a huge long run. Yeah, I mean, you didn't. You ended up all the New Yorkers were long gone by then. And you just had a bunch of Americans. You got people from all over the world coming to see that show. That was was amazing. And you still had that same pattern of laughter hmm. and of also being moved. You had the rare opportunity to do the film and play a role that you'd created on stage. So often right. that does not happen. Did you have to realign your performance for the different medium? Yes, because Fred Skepsi, who directed it, we discussed this, and he, when I was in rehearsal, and also I was in mean, a whole other cast, uh, Donald Sutherland, uh, Will Smith, and uh, as I said to you earlier, everybody, I'm working with different people. I have become adjust what I do because I'm, I had a different husband, I had a different young man, I had a, you know, etc. And anyway, we rehearsed it. Fred said, "I'm going to ask you to speak in a monotone." So I spoke in a monotone because he wanted to leech out of me all the other readings that I had done and so we had like a two-week rehearsal period and as he referred to it as putting toothpaste back into the tube, he said it will be very difficult for you because also when we do it on film, lines that I had learned in one set of circumstances, maybe even in a, in a completely comedic way, would be exactly the same line but it would not – it would be at a, a darkened dining room table as opposed to uh, you know a 1100-seat theater. I mean it was – and so all of that stuff was sort of redefined. Uh, I, I think very little of it was – would be in the same context that I'd done it before. But the words were exactly the same. And um, 
And that's that's even more unusual. I don't know of any screenplay that's like that. And John mm. was John and Fred worked together and they did that for a reason. Whether it was just to satisfy their own thing of can we do this, but that's how it was done. So that was even more tricky, but interesting. Hmm. Now, because your relationship with John Guare will continue on, you next did his play Four Babylons Adoring the Sun, yes. which is a play that did not have a long run. It was a play that divided all kinds of opinions mm-hmm. about it. As you were doing it, as you were rehearsing it, did it feel like you were doing a difficult play? Did you think? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it did. And the whole thing with the children, the chorus of children who range in age from 4 to 14 or something like that, and then you put them in a sand pit. I mean, unbelievable. When we got onto this incredibly elaborate Tony Walton set with this earthquake in the building, it was just <laughs> – and uh, yeah, I think that – I've never seen it. And then we had the opera singer with the gold phallic thing on his head and who – who was came out in um, in uh, I think it was Tex I, I think probably in his first up in this outfit that was gold with and he was a very beautifully made young man uh, and had a beautiful voice and um, but he had all these children surrounding him in the sand pit during Tech and they would play in sand <laughs> and the sand would rise up and and, it, and he said I, I'm 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 going to lose my voice as he's standing there this like gold body stocking with his phallus on his head and someone suggested he might put a, a mask over his face so he wouldn't breathe in the sand. He said, I'd look ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> and that was what pushed it over. <laughs> I mean, there was a lot of that going on. But, you know, um, Jimmy Norton and I just basically, we just said we were parents of these children and we were in love with each other. That's the story we're telling. And you just had to get on that horse and ride it. And it was um, it was quite quite an experience. When you're in a show that can be challenging for audiences, as you say, you're aware of what's going on in the audience. You respond. You you hear them, whether it's waves or whether it's intimate. Was that a show where you? Really had to, in some cases, steal yourself for yeah, the audience I would, responses. I think so. Yeah, and and then the children, God love them, they were really some of them. They, they weren't like little actors. Most of them they were just little. They were actual children. Actual <laughs> children in actual sand, and uh, um, it was challenging. But you just have got through it. I mean, I don't know if another production of that play would have. You know, I don't know if there've been others, but. I was always curious because there was such heart in the middle of it and such passion and such, you know, absurdity inside of it. And I was really involved in the play itself. I remember John and I would talk a lot about it, all these references to Greek situations, whatever. But the audience was just coming in to see a play. And so all these conversations we had had and uh, didn't really apply to them. It wasn't germane, but it was wonderful to think about. And mm. uh, it was kind of wonderful to perform because it was so out there. Hmm. And it's hard to get be able to do that sort of theater. It doesn't exist very much, you know, in the, in the mainstream. And I felt I was in some massively experimental situation. Unfortunately, it was an experimental situation at the Vivian Beaumont Theater. So the next show at Lincoln Center, you went downstairs again. Yes. Tom Stoppard's Hapgood. Right. Which um, I think every play by Tom Stoppard, people say, oh, his work is difficult. Um, and Hapgood. This play had been referred to as impenetrable ah, by the uh, okay. London critics, the one London critic I remember. 
I saw it. I thought it was phenomenal. I'm amazed it's not done more. Mm -hmm. From an audience perspective, I got it. What was the experience of penetrating the impenetrable? Well, uh, when I was in London doing Six Degrees, I met Tom and he asked me, we spent some time together and he asked me, he told me he was interested in me doing this. And I suggested he talk to Jack O'Brien, um, who was an old friend of mine, who I think Tom had met before, but they didn't really know each other. And um, I think between Jack and obviously the play itself, the casting and the design, it was a Bob Crowley design, um, it really brought the play down to its basics. And I think one of the genius thing about Jack is he's so – brilliant and erudite a person in terms of all his what he knows about anything from literature to music to this and that. So he, he's acting at all the highbrow aspects of Tom's stuff he can access. But he also has this incredible access to middle to lowbrow, if you will, stuff, almost musical-y stuff. And he understands about the story you have to tell. And I think that the the heat of it, the sexuality of it, all of that Jack brought to the forefront so people could enjoy that piece on so many levels. In fact, I remember because it was an it was an unbelievable hit in, in the Mitzi. And I remember there was – this is what – how many years ago? 15, 16 years yeah, about ago. about that. I mean there were scalper tickets for 500 bucks a piece. You heard about that and people were wow. – you know, it was – I mean – I didn't pay that. <laughs> good for you. <laughs> you know, but you'd hear that, whatever. Mm. And, and the people who came and really tried to figure out all the – the you know the, the physics or the this is up or the that and they'd be sitting there people with their knitted brows earnestly trying to figure that out and if they got it so much for it but the people who just went with it and saw that it was this incredible love story and this puzzle and, this, and the sexuality of it and this and that of it and who's zooming who and who's you know the twin stuff and right. I mean all of that that duality stuff and just went with that we're really thrilled by the whole thing, you know, and uh, where the other two just tried to figure out that moth of the cathedral stuff uh, kind of could be left behind. But um, I think that it, it was the design of it and the whole execution of it and the cast was was terrific as well. And I think that, you know, people would say, did, oh, did Tom rewrite it? And, uh, and I said, no, no, he didn't. There's not a word cut. It's exactly the same, which is hmm. really interesting phenomenon. Hmm. Very interesting. Now, we spoke earlier, you mentioned Little Foxes, so I'm going to jump right to Lion in Winter. When you take on a role that was originated on stage by Rosemary Harris mm. and then immortalized an Oscar-winning role on screen for everybody to watch with Catherine Hepburn, that, that has to be daunting to take on that role of Eleanor well, I, I, that's, I mean that's the issue I can have with Little Foxes, with Lion in Winter, or with even Impal Joey is that people are – because we access we have to film, they'll rent a film which was an adaptation from a screenplay, which is the truth in all three of these cases. And uh, ultimately it can be very frustrating. Certainly the case of Pal Joey, my God, it was had nothing to do with the original mm -hmm. story whatsoever. It was a complete bolderized version, but that's the one people can read. In terms of uh, of the film version, surely Jimmy Goldman wrote the film version and all of that, but the original th approach to um, uh, uh, Line in Winter, which they're going to be doing it in London, I believe, and the way it really should, but it's like it's a boulevard comedy. And um, I adored wor working with Lawrence Fishburne. He was fabulous, fabulous man to work with. 
and so skilled and, and, and the rest of it. But the frustration was that people would go, you know, look at that movie and there would be lines, a lot of lines cut. It was an adaptation. The same is true of Little Foxes. It is an adaptation from a play. And um, it's a, it, that is the frustration of doing revivals this, in this day and age. So at first I, I was sort of naive saying, well, I'm just doing my version of it. But uh, you are limited to what the original play was. You can't go snipping about and, and somebody leaps on a horse and rides off in the sunset you know, from a castle somewhere. You're doing a play on a stage. Um, and that is – that's kind of the – the frustrations of that more than following the footsteps of mm-hmm. because those footsteps are in another place. They're in a, they're in a town far from here sometimes. So, so it's it's the script. It's the words. Yeah. It's not the performance because you Absolutely. can only work within, within the parameters. That's yeah. very interesting. I want to ask you about two gigs that you did over uh, on the other side of the Atlantic. Awake and Sing at the mm-hmm. Almeida. Yeah. How did that come about? Um. Uh, I just uh, chat with Michael and he said – I said, well, if I come up with something, I'll give you a call. And he came up with the idea of Awake and Sing and I said, well, that would be fun. Let's do that. Hmm. <laughs> so I did it. <laughs> and then importance of being earnest mm-hmm. in Dublin. Yeah. That's interesting in <laughs> that, you know, to choose an American to come to Ireland to do a play by – They approached me um, – I was doing. It was okay. I was doing Pal Joe. It, it was no. It was a year. It was a. It was in a fall. A year. A year and change ago. That was. So that's two thousand nine. Is that right? I have it as two thousand ten. But but two thousand two thousand nine. They approached okay. me. We talked about it, and um, they said they wanted to do it in two thousand ten, in uh, in May. And uh, I sort of thought, and I read it, and then I met with uh, the the the, um, the director, uh, and I actually went over to Dublin and. Uh, sniffed around and I thought, why not? And um, basically, and actually thinking of doing it again in in England. Hmm. Um, It was fascinating because um, I am of mostly Irish descent, uh, but I played, you know, with, it's a young company called Rough Magic and um, it's a very abstract set. It's a very energetic, um, bouncy company and they're very skilled because they work all the time and this and that, but it's a very small community. And uh, we were in the Gaiety Theater, which is a 1,200-seat house. Fantastic. Edwardian and a vintage theater. house, I believe. Absolutely. And it, was, yeah. it was, you know, fluffed and it looked like it was, as we in Edwardian things. It was a great thing to do. And I just met with her the other day as we were talking about it. Um, and what was fantastic about it was that the audience who came, and it was packed, and we were sold out, were, we treated, they, they responded to it like it was a new play. It was hysterical, especially that last act, which is quite divine to, to do. And we, I did not have a big bird on my head. I mean, I, I might have had a tiny bit of peacock feathers, but, um, I, I had my own approach to herself and, um, you know, and we all did it with English accents and that was all fine, but it was just, remember this fantastic company. And so, um, we'll see. But I, I have to ask, you know, it's a role that it's a marvelous role. It's not the lead role in the show, no. really. And it is a role that is thought of as an elderly battle axe, or you know, they the, the well, color of gorgon. Except it's supposed to be a mother of a twenty-five-year-old girl. Hmm. So that was what I played. 
So, but she was a, she was a bad actress. She was a piece of work. I, I, I think uh, she was very vain. She was extreme. She was a social climber. She was an Ari Vist. She was decked out in her own way. And she, I mean, I, we, we didn't do anything really wacky with it. But what it it really it held. And um, you know, uh, I mean, obviously, you must have seen the, the current production, which I have not. But uh, uh, you know, it's it was it was very very successful. So we'll see. Hmm. We've spoken of Pal Joey. I just want to ask one question about that, which was when you did Pal Joey, it had been, uh, unless I'm missing something in the history, 24 years since you'd done a musical, certainly on Broadway. I guess so. Um, was there anything daunting about going back into the musical form? Oh, and also to sing that song. Thank you very much. <laughs> you know. Um, well, you, since you bring it up. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, and. Uh, well, you no, know, I, I had great respect for what I was about to go into. I trained myself. I did all the, all the you know, requisite physical, uh, vocal stuff. Um, uh, but probably more daunting was the actual interpretation song, which I just worked on with Paul Gemignani, the music director, and obviously with Joe. And obviously, if you saw it, it was done in a different way. And there was the way the, the text is now written. It was a sort of post-coital delivery, which I thought was fantastic to do, but I think originally it was done in the tailor shop as a more of a, almost a patter song hmm. um, uh, because I heard various recordings of it um, and other productions and so uh, – and it was done with a much more sort of like mischievous rire kind of thing. Hmm. But as we approached it, I thought of a kind of ambivalence of – Vera in that moment and her desire to just finally make the decision to throw herself into this pool of sensuality or sexuality she had discovered. Mm. And um, it was, you know, it was sort of part of me wanted to go sing out Louise and do whatever. But if you're lying in a pile of satin sheets with somebody, you don't suddenly step off and hit the back wall. So uh, but that was the way we decided to, to do it. And uh, I found it very – Satisfying in that way because I don't know it was it was it was what I did do is I I got tapes of like twenty five people doing various versions of it and um, you know not tapes but I made it somebody made me a CD of it and I realized you can do the song fifty million ways so that was really liberated me to do it but were there one version it might have been again back exactly. to the idea of daunting but when you heard the multiplicity yeah I mean you know it's like if you're going to play funny girl that's daunting. That would be daunting. <laughs> I don't care who you are. That's daunting. I mean, uh, you know, but uh, in this particular case, there were many ways to, you know, um, to do it. And we just and – I, and I thought it was kind of – I loved it. I loved it doing it. But I still found it challenging. Hmm. Well, right now, continuing in John Robin Bates's Other Desert Cities at Lincoln Center Theater, Stockard Channing – Consider this the fan letter I never wrote in oh. 1982. <laughs> and thank you for being here today on oh, Downstage thank Center. Thank you. Our engineer for this Downstage Center program is Chad Bernhard. Our researcher is Craig Thompson. Our director of web development is Rob Perry. And our producer is Gail Yankosik. Downstage Center is recorded in the CUNY TV radio studio at the City University of New York's Graduate School of Journalism in Manhattan. Along with this program, all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from AmericanTheatreWing.org. 
You can follow ATW on Twitter at The Wing and also follow me on Twitter as H.E. Sherman. You can declare yourself as one of our fans on Facebook at The American Theater Wing and be sure to check out our YouTube channel. If you're a regular listener to or viewer of Wing programs, please remember that we are a not-for-profit organization and consider giving us financial support to sustain our work. Just visit the website and click on Support ATW. For Downstage Center in the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman. Thanks for listening, and no matter where you live, I hope we'll see you at the theater.